Amen. How many of you know that the Bible is full of errors? Full of them, okay? Yeah, full of mistakes. The first error was when the first woman doubted the word of God. The second error was when her husband did the same. And errors have been committed ever since by those who continue to doubt the word of God. How I many of you know the Bible is full of contradictions? Contradicts lust, contradicts lying, contradicts theory, contradicts sin, yours and mine. How many of you know that the Bible was not written by God for those who like to play games with words, for those who like to look at what is good and not do it? Okay. <laughs> the Bible is a book like any other, or not, not like any other, excuse me. The Bible is a book not like any other. Okay. What makes this book special? Written by 40 different authors over a span of thousands of years, okay, from different regions of the world, different backgrounds, different socioeconomic classes, different le levels of education. Many of them had no ability to communicate one with another. And yet this book is a unified, comprehensive, harmonious whole. The Bible is so unified in its, m in its message, in its content, it must have been inspired by God, okay? <laughs> How many of you know that the Bible, this book, has undergone incredible persecution throughout its lifetime? Many nations throughout this world, some very recently, have made a determined effort to destroy this book. They have literally tried to erase it from human consciousness. I'm thinking in particular of one nation, the former Soviet Union, okay? made a concentrated, determined effort to eradicate Bibles from all people living within the Soviet Union. Now, the thing is, what's interesting about the Soviet Union is that when it was formed, and as it took over territory after World War II, it roped in nations that had grown up, really, with this Bible forming the basis of their civilizations, forming the basis of their culture and their society. And so the Soviets thought, you know what, this is, this is garbage, this, this book is holding us back. Karl Marx said that religion is the opiate of the masses. It is just here to keep us numb and prevent us from reaching our true potential as human beings. So they made a concentrated effort to destroy the Bible. It was illegal to possess a Bible in the Soviet Union. And there was a, a man by the name of Andrew, who was from the Netherlands, who his, God got a hold of his life. And this was his mission, to smuggle Bibles into the Soviet Union. Okay, they were contraband, so if he got caught with these Bibles, it was for sure a prison sentence in a labor camp. It was for sure death for him, guaranteed. And he made trip after trip to different nations within the Soviet Union, delivering Bibles. You all need to read this story. It's called God Smuggler. It is one of the most powerful stories I have ever read. And you, you're just blown away as, as he has story after story of smuggling Bibles into underground churches where he would go to these churches and they would meet in a dark room and it might be eight or ten individuals and they would pray and they would have to whisper for fear of being caught. He said, I was waiting for them to sing the hymn and then I realized they're not going to sing in this church service because they can't. And then he would have this box and they would gather around and he would bring out Bibles, and they would literally have to hold their mouths to stop from shouting with joy. Because the Bible had been brought back into their hands, people would weep openly 
Do you see how precious the word of God is? Even in nations that are determining to destroy, look like no other. Now, I shared a little bit of my story last week, how I grew up in the church. Uh, I grew up as a Christian kid, but I didn't live it out. And we talked about honesty last week. And we talked about what we can know about God just naturally or generally, just by living in this world. Well, I knew a lot more about God than just that. Because I went to church every Sunday I heard message after message. I saw my parents' lives. My parents made sure to teach my brother and I stories from the Bible. I was well-versed in this book. I knew it really well, but I was not living according to it. And one day, I was, uh, this was my junior year of college, I, the first semester I got involved with Outpost, when I didn't really want to be around these Christian guys, but I desperately wanted their friendship in my life. And I was, in, I was sitting on my bed one day, and for some reason, I just decided I was going to try cracking open my Bible again because I had not read it probably in years. I turned to a random passage, started reading. It was so difficult for me to read this book with my heart being the way it was. I slammed it shut. I said, God, talking to you is like talking to a wall. I literally cursed God in my bedroom, blasphemed God, said, this is, this is total nonsense and garbage. I shoved my Bible away. I said, I'm done with this. That was my attitude towards the Word of God, okay? As a junior in college, at 21 years old, I got invited to go to Salt, okay? Fall Salt, right? Back then, it was in the winter, and we made the treacherous journey through Montana, okay? You guys have a lot easier now. We get to go through nice Utah. This was Montana, okay, Helena, Montana, in the dead of winter, January. Snow everywhere. It was miserable, but I got invited to go to this conference, and I didn't have any excuse not to. I was at home bored over winter break. My parents paid for it, me to go. I'm sure thinking, hopefully God will get a hold of him there. I was at this conference. I didn't bring my Bible because, like I had said, I'm, I was done with it. I didn't want to be seen with it. I didn't want anything to do with it. Okay. While I was at this conference, God spoke to me. And we're going to talk about that tonight, how God speaks to us. I was not looking for God. I was not wanting to hear him or know him or have anything to do with him. But out of nowhere, God spoke. And this is how I know it was God. He told me to do something I did not want to do. He told me to do the very thing I refused to do, which is to give up my pride, to bow down before him. It was literally get on your knees and bow before me. But it meant more than just physically getting on my knees. I knew he meant everything. He meant give me your life, Brent. And I sat there. This is during a time of worship after one of the speakers had spoken and, you know, people are worshiping God. I'm in the back of the room. I have my arms folded and I was thinking to myself, God is literally asking for my life. And I was scared. I was afraid to make that step of obedience. But something in me, by the grace of God, by the grace of God, I got down on my knees and I immediately broke I started weeping. I had never cried for God. I had never felt sorry for God. But for the first time in my life, I felt bad for the way I had lived and the way I had treated him. Much like we spoke about last week, I got honest. I said for the first time in my life, God, I'm wrong and you're right. And that led to an intense revelation of who God is. I, in that moment, I saw God is so real. God is so big. All my atheist thoughts were gone. They just vanished. God, you're so immense. I just, I was overwhelmed by the reality of God. <laughs> and that night, I went back to my hotel room. 
And because I did not bring a Bible of my own, I knew there was a Bible in, in that hotel room by the Gideons. Every hotel room, they, they distribute these Bibles. I pulled out the Gideon Bible. I began reading the Bible. I opened it back up to the, to the book of John, one of the Gospels. And when I read the book of John, it was like the words made total sense to me. And one of our, one of our dear brothers, Duncan Chance, who's the director of Chi Alpha at UNC, who we'll get to hang out with if you come to Fall Salt next weekend. A lot of shameless plugs for Fall Salt tonight. Just be aware. I got to, he, he was staying, I was staying in his room, and he came in the room unexpectedly, and he saw me there. I was, I think it was dark. You know, I was like, I didn't even turn the, I was just like so just struck by God in that moment. And he came in the room, he's like, are you, are you all right? Because he saw the tears on my face, you know, he knew I was hard-hearted. He knew what I was like. Up until that moment, all Duncan knew was this hard-hearted, religious, bitter church kid named Brent. But he saw me, and I was like, yes, Duncan, everything is all right. Because I understand. I get it now. This book was not just any book to me anymore. Much like Milo said in his testimony, it was alive. And I was so glad. I was so thankful to God that he had just brought me back to a place where I could understand his word. I remember going home and telling my parents for the first time in my life, Mom and Dad, I love Jesus Christ. I'll never forget that. I'll never forget that. And seeing the joy on their faces because they had, they had been praying for me for years to come to that point. Hallelujah. You see, the Bible is a book like no other, right? This, we could, this is one way we could define the Bible. We could call it this. God revealing his thoughts and his reasons for everything he has done in human history. It's the thoughts of God. It's the reasons of God. You can't get that just by looking at the world. We need some help to know what God thinks and to know why he does what he does. Now, the awesome thing about that is God wants you to know why he does what he does. Check this out. So many people think, why does God judge others. You know, you read some stories in the Old Testament, and you're, you might question if God is really good. You know what? God has a reason for everything he does, including the judgments, including the times where he has had to wipe out life. He says in Genesis chapter 6 that the thoughts, the intentions of the heart of men and women were evil continually. That's his reason. That's his reason. They, they, were, they were living in such a way that he was almost forced to judge them. He was living in such a way, contrary to their design, he had planned for humanity to live in perfect relationship with himself and with one another. But they have gone astray in their thinking and their actions. They are sinning continually. They're devising sin. It's all they are is just evil. There's no pause within that. It's violence continually. And he looks at this, he says, I have to intervene. Now here's his thought about having to intervene. The very next verse, we read that God regretted he had made man and it grieved him. It grieved God, okay? In his heart. Literally means to be without breath. Have you ever felt grief so painful you can't breathe? God has. That's his, that's his reason. That's his thought. Do you see God is so good. He wants, to, he wants you to know why he does what he does. And we look at that and we're like, yeah, God, we can't blame you. 
You can, we can't assign blame to your name for that. You had to do that, and it was exceedingly painful beyond what we even realize. Okay? Now, the first thing about the Bible that's really uh, interesting is that this book is true, but some of us tonight might be wondering, can I trust this book? Can I really trust it? And the first thing I want to present to you is this. This book is too honest to be invented, especially about its authors, about the men and women who wrote down the scriptures. It is utterly honest, okay? Totally honest about them. It does not point, paint them in a positive light. The Apostle Peter, he has two books in the New Testament, the second half of the Bible. Peter denied Christ on the night that Christ was betrayed, tried, and crucified. Okay? Peter, who was supposed to be the closest of the disciples to Jesus, betrayed, cursed God and said, I don't know the man. Total betrayal. You know, one of the greatest failures in the history of the church. It's there for everyone to read. If he were working out a scheme to invent this, do you think he would have included that story? No, 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 guys. Don't put that part in there. <laughs> you know? Paul, okay, who wrote basically half of the New Testament. Who was Paul before he became a Christian? He was a terrorist. He went around trying to exterminate the church through murder. He wanted to kill Christians. And he was, in fact, doing that, and in the process of doing that, became a Christian. Okay? James, the stepbrother of Jesus, did not believe in Jesus until after the resurrection. I, we'll give him this. It would be pretty hard. Imagine you having a younger brother, or excuse me, your older brother, who claimed to be the Messiah. Okay? Pretty hard to believe in that when you grow up together <laughs> your whole life. <laughs> but here's the thing. He doesn't get... He doesn't get any credit for recognizing Jesus. It took, it took a miraculous revelation of the resurrection to him personally to get him to believe. So we see again and again the people in this book, the authors of this book, they are not uh, painted in, in a good light. We see their, their failures in a very honest way, which would not be the case if they were inventing this. Some might say, well, I don't think they invented it, but maybe they were just deluded. Maybe they shared the same hypnotic vision of resurrected Jesus. Maybe they saw a trance. But the thing is, this is not a story about innocent men who were deluded into believing this. This is a story about evil men becoming good. It's so shocking, the contrast in their lives before and after encountering Jesus. You can read it in the pages. There's no explanation for that. If, if that's just a delusion, wow, why isn't that happening more often? <laughs> yeah, give, us, give everyone that delusion then. But it's not. The case, the case is this. This book must have been written by honest men who honestly dealt with the things they talk about. And here's the other thing. Here's what's so cool about the Bible. This is the only book, this is the only story, the only religious narrative in the entire world where we're not the hero of the story. God is. God is the hero of the Bible. It is not a book about what man has done or what man can do to reach God. It is primarily a book about what God has done to reach us. Yeah. It is a declaration of the things that he has done on our behalf. No other book is like that. I'm telling you this. Other faiths will admit, if they're being deeply honest, and I've read it, I've read Muslims admit the Quran is a man-centered book. It just is. It's all about how 
man can achieve salvation, how man can reach and climb the staircase up to heaven. Every other religious belief system, you could, you could really see through that lens, okay, honestly. But this is so different. It is not about man being the hero. We don't get to be the, the, the hero of the story. Jesus is, right? Now, who wrote this book? Who wrote the Bible? It says in the Word, speaking about those who wrote this, this work, wrote the, wrote the words down, that they were holy men of God who were moved by the Holy Spirit to prophesy, to speak the truths of God. So we know a couple things about these guys. When they wrote this stuff down, they were holy. They, they became good. So we can trust them. Okay? They didn't write this stuff as uh, un, unrepentant sinners you know, in unbelief. Everyone who wrote stuff down, it was, it was when they were in a time of God actually revealing himself to them, and they were living according to the light they had. They were living honestly. So we can trust what they've said, but secondly, it says that they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit, God, moved in these people to record these things. Thus saith the Lord, or the Lord says, in quotes, is quoted 3,800 times in the Old Testament. So a lot of this book is direct quotation from God. It's not just a bunch of ideas that, that a bunch of guys thought up about who God is. It's not speculation. It's not philosophy of like, man, how can we logically conclude God? It is just straight up, God said this. He spoke this. He, he, he did this. Okay, so that's important to understand. Some of you tonight might be unfamiliar with what prophecy is. I want to help you understand a little bit better. One in six verses in this book we could categorize as prophecy. And that is one of the things that makes this book also like no other. There's no other book that dares to claim to predict what will happen in the future. Now, here's an interesting thing about prophecy. Prophecy is not so much a prediction. It is a declaration of what God will do in his power. It's the, it's the reality that God is going to make. It's not so much like, oh, how awesome. He can, he's like a fortune teller. No, 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 no. That's missing the point. Now, prophecy is literally God is so powerful. He can do what you and I can't. See, I have no power over tomorrow. I can make plans, but I could get hit by a car and die, and, you know, all my plans are, are gonna, not going to happen, be unfulfilled. God doesn't have that problem. That's what separates God from us. God has the ability, he has the power to will what will happen. And it's so awesome. So much prophecy is like that. You read in the Old Testament, God makes some amazing promises to his friends. One of God's friends... The, this guy by the name of Abraham was called out of a family who were not worshipers of God, of the true God. But God called him out of that, and Abraham started to obey. And he did what God said, and he actually became really close friends with God. Okay? We can all have that tonight, by the way. You can become a close friend of God. And Abraham became so close with God, God said, you know what, Abraham, I want to bless you. I want to make you a promise so great, it's going to blow your mind. And God said this, Abraham, I'm going to make a nation out of you. And at the time, Abraham didn't have a descendant to his name. He was unable to bear children, and so was his wife. But God said, I'm going to make a nation out of you, and then I'm going to use that nation to bless all the nations of the world. We look at their story, their history, called the Old Testament. 
you see this nation, um, they were unfortunately not a blessing to the world. They were a byword and a curse, it says. They became so rebellious against God, he had to judge them. He had to remove his favor and his anointing from them for a season. He had to expel them from their land, he promised to them. So they ended up losing the blessings of this promise God had made. So to all appearances, up until half of this book, it looks like they've blown it and there's no way back. Okay? Just, <laughs> that's the way it is. Now there's another friend of God's. His name is David. David was known as the greatest king in Israel's history. Under David's reign, Israel experienced the greatest spiritual renewal that the nation would ever know. And David was called a man after God's own heart. Now, one day, David thought, you know what? It's kind of crazy that I live in this palace, but God, he's living in a tent. Because God dwelled in this thing called the tabernacle, which was made out of goat skin. You know, it was curtains. It was not anything near where David was living. And he's like, this is weird that I've got a better house than God. So I want to build a new house for God. I want to build a temple to the Lord because he loved the Lord so much. He just was thinking about his highest good. And the Lord said this, no, David, you're actually not going to do that. Your son's going to do that. But I want you to know something, David. You're, you're never going to fail to have a king on the throne who's a descendant of yours. And your kingdom's going to go on forever. It's never going to end. Now, we read, again, the sad history of Israel that king after king after David rebelled against God, didn't live for God. If you read the books, First and Second Kings, you see this picture. It's so dreary. It's like, man, this guy was bad, and then the next king was even worse. And it, literally some of them, it says they were the worst of all. <laughs> you know, it's just like, oh, like, it doesn't get any better. There's a few reprieves where there were a few couple good kings who, who got it. But for the most part, they just totally rejected God until finally God took the kingdom away from them. And there were no kings after David. So on the surface, it looks like God has not kept his word. But then we read the first verse of the New Testament. Check this out. Matthew 1.1. This is the record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of Abraham, the son of David. What does that mean? What, why in the world would Matthew begin his gospel with that? Why would the Holy Spirit choose this verse to connect the, what he's going to do in the New Testament to the Old? It's because he's saying this, Jesus Christ is going to fulfill those promises to Abraham and to David. Those promises are going to happen. The word of God is going to be fulfilled. There was going to be a nation of people, not just Jews. Get this, people all over the world were going to form a new nation, a new people of God who would bless the world. Friends, if you're a believer tonight, you're part of that nation. You are a fulfillment of the promise of God to Abraham generations and eons ago, right? David, where is, his, where is his descendant? Jesus Christ, the king who will never disobey God, who will never rebel against God, who will live for God forever. It says that he will go on living forever and evermore, solving that problem of how are there going to be descendants who will live this out. Jesus Christ is that king who fulfilled that prophecy. Do you understand? God keeps his word. In Jesus' own lifetime, Jesus predicted that he would be turned over to the Gentiles, the Romans, 
They would arrest him, they would crucify him, and three days later, he would rise from the dead. Three separate occasions, he tells his followers this is going to happen. Now, if you want to start a religion, I recommend that you tell everyone you're going to die, how you're going to die, and then tell them you're going to come back from the dead, and then actually do it. <laughs> it's a good way to, that's a good way to start a religion. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> right? <laughs> he actually did it. He did what he said he was going to do. Now, some of the prophecy in this book still has not come to pass. One of the things that Jesus has said is he's coming back. Some of you tonight might, might not even know that. Like, what? He's coming back? Yeah, he's coming back. He is going to come back into this earth just like he left it. And this time he's coming back for his church, his people who love him. And what's awesome about this prophecy is that it could happen at any moment. It could happen tonight. It could happen tomorrow. We don't know. It could literally happen at any second. But people that are skeptical look at this and they say, oh, Jesus hasn't come back yet. In fact, I read a play in college. I was an English major. I mentioned that last week called Waiting for Godot. How many of you heard this play? By Samuel Beckett. What is that? Godot is a play on words. It's literally waiting for God. It's about two men who are questioning should they keep waiting for this Godot guy? Because he's been a long time coming. He promised them he would come back, but he hasn't shown up yet. And they start to speculate, well, if he doesn't come back, what should we do? And it's basically poking fun at the promise of God. It's questioning the very trustworthiness of God. Is he really coming back? And here's the amazing thing. Remember how I said the Bible gives reasons? Let's look at the reason God gives. He says in 1 Peter, that he's, he's delayed his coming because he desires that none would perish. He is so concerned about trying to reach as much of this world as possible, he has delayed coming back. Because C.S. Lewis says this so well, when the author of the play steps on stage, the show is over. Right? When the author, when God, the author of life, steps back into, our, into, into this planet in that way, the curtains are going up, the lights are coming on, everything's going to be revealed as it is, and we're going to see the truth in its naked form. It's, it's just, there's going to be no ability at that point to make a decision anymore because y y it'll just be decided for you. The reality will be right there in front of everyone's, and, and the church is longing for him to come back. We've been, the church has been longing for Jesus to come back for 2019 years. And yet he is not returned, not because he's unfaithful, but because he's merciful. So often prophecy in the Bible is not something novel or new. It's just God reminding people what he's already said. How many of you have experienced your mom calling you to dinner? You know, and maybe, maybe you're distracted and you're doing something. You're like, yeah, mom, I'll be there. The first time she says it, you know, it's real gentle and sweet. And then the second time, hey, come to, come to dinner. And then you're like, yeah, mom, I'll be there. Don't worry. And you're, you know, you're so busy playing a video game or you're outside playing soccer or, or something else. And, then, and then, then you hear there the third time and it's pretty urgent. Hey, come in for dinner. And you're like, yeah, mom, I'll be there. And the fourth time, it's not gentle anymore. It's like it's that tone of voice, you know, I'm, I'm in deep trouble if I don't make it into dinner right this second. Ah, I'm going to go to dinner, right? So <laughs> that's how it is a lot of times in Scripture. It's, it's re it repeats things because God is saying, I want to get your attention. I want, I want to remind you, look, he's getting urgent with us. 
And the things that he repeats the most, we should underline those a thousand times and pay the most attention to them. In fact, you should pay attention to the whole thing, but there are certain times where God's like, he's like underlining it, like, pay attention to this. Hear me. And he's reminding us. See, he's so good. It's merciful of him to remind us. Jeremy, Jeremiah, excuse me, Jeremiah 7. <laughs> yeah, the, the modern translation, Jeremy. <laughs> Jeremy 7, verse 25 says, okay, I'm actually going to back it up. This is what I commanded them, saying, this is God speaking about Israel. Obey my voice. Interesting, right? Obey my voice, and I will be your God. And you shall be my people and walk in all the ways that I have commanded you, that it may be well with you. Yet they did not obey or incline their ear, but followed the counsels and the dictates of their evil hearts and went backward and not forward. Since the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt until this day, I have even sent to you all my servants, the prophets, daily rising up early and sending them. Yet they did not obey me or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck. They did worse than their fathers. Therefore, you shall speak all these words to them, but they will not obey you. You shall also call to them, but they will not answer you. Quite a calling on the prophet Jeremiah's life. You're going to go tell them what I'm wanting to tell them. This message of passionate love and distress. Calling them back into obedience. But they're not going to listen to you. Why in the world would God speak to people who have no desire to listen to him? He must be really merciful. He must long and hope maybe this time they're going to listen. Maybe this, and that was it for me, guys. God did not give up on me the first time that I rejected his voice. Praise God. I would be lost forever if he had given up on me that first time. I had opportunity after opportunity after opportunity after opportunity. I rejected them one by one by one by one. But finally, finally God got a hold of me. And it was that one time he spoke and I obeyed it. And I did what he said. My whole life turned around. See, God didn't give up on me and he's not going to give up on you either. That's what this word, this amazing book, communicates to us. Some would look at this book and say, it's old. How can a book written literally thousands of years ago, some of the parts of it, be relevant for my life? Here's what's interesting and awesome about this book is it communicates to us truths that are absolute. The truth in this book, it doesn't, it doesn't make claims that are relevant. It doesn't make claims that are relative. It makes claims that are absolute and universal. No matter where you're at, no matter what part of the world you're born into, this truth is going to be the same. And what's awesome about absolutes, the fact that God is uncreated, we mentioned that last week, or the fact that God is three in one, he's three persons in one, or that he's infinite, or that he's everywhere present at the same time, wrap your mind around that. The that here's what's cool about these absolutes. When we come in contact with them, the right response, as what Francis Schaeffer would say, is we should take our hats off and worship. Because you can't wrap your mind around that. You run into something that's infinite and absolute, and the only thing you can do is just say, wow, this is amazing. See, absolutes create wonder. But when we don't believe in absolutes, when we say there's no absolutes, and we reject the absolutes of God, and we, we say, no, it's all relative, we think we know everything. And when you think you know everything, you lose wonder. You, you have to go find it somewhere else. And that's why our culture finds its wonder in fantasy and sci-fi films. Literally, people will pay billions of dollars collectively for something they don't need in their life. To go see Marvel or Lord of the Rings or Star Wars. Those are our biggest movie blockbuster franchises. Why? 
It's because it's tapping into a sense of wonder that's been lost because people are no longer finding it on their knees before the truth of God. You see, when you come to know some of the truth in this book, you get your hand around it. You grasp part of that truth. It's real. A brand new Christian, let's say you've only been following God for 30 minutes, and you realize that God loves you. Your understanding of God's love is real in that moment. That's not, that's not a false idea. That is totally real. But you have a tiny glimpse of what that means. There was a theologian who grew up during the Nazi occupation of Germany who helped form the church which resisted Hitler. His name was Karl Barth. Karl Barth was a famous theologian. He, he resisted Hitler. He lived through the Nazi occupation. He went on to write many numerous books about God that were very popular, very uh, well-read in the last century. And someone asked him at the end of his life, out of all the millions of words that you've written down, how would you summarize what you've learned about God? This is what he said. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. For him to say, Jesus loves me, is so much richer and so much deeper and so much more profound. He spent his whole life dedicating to studying and knowing God, and he lived it out. And so when the bullets flew and God was faithful in that, and when he brought him through all the storms of life, and at the end he was reflecting on what he had learned and looked back and saw God is love, that is it's so much richer than the, the realization of the brand new Christian. But it's real. You see, that's what eternity is going to be like for us. It, it's not going to be learning, like, you know, crazy things about the, the thread count of the curtain in the tabernacle. It's going to be going deeper into the love of God. It's just going to be these simple truths that you already are beginning to grasp now, many of you tonight. Going deeper and deeper in the five billion years from now, you're going to learn what love means in a way that you never could have realized. And it's going to go deeper and deeper and on and on because God is in fence. If you're bored by this book, if you're bored with God, I think the problem is with you. Okay? This book is not boring. It is, it is the adventure of a lifetime. Okay? Now, I think the question behind every skeptic who looks at this word and says, I'm not sure about this, the real underlying question is this. Can God be trusted? Can I really trust God? It's not so much about this book. It's really not. People fight tooth and nail over the interpretations, and they say it's been changed in the translations, and they say, you know, who can, who can be sure of it? Who can trust it? The real question is actually can I trust the author? Can I tr really trust God actually did this, wrote this down? Can I trust that his word is going to come true? Here's how we can know whether God is trustworthy or not. First of all, and this is the basis of trust for anyone, that person that you trust has to be wise. They have to know something. Jesus was constantly pulling back the curtains of eternity. And he would speak like this. In John chapter 6, there's this incredible verse. He says, I have come down from heaven to do the will of my Father. Who in the world says, I've come down from heaven? That's not, if you think Jesus is just a good teacher, he's crazy. <laughs> Right? People should have been like, what? <laughs> you came down from heaven, Jesus? Okay. All right. <laughs> but, but we read that verse. We read that him say that, and it makes total sense. Nobody spoke more about eternity than Jesus because he was an absolute authority on the subject. 
He spoke more about heaven and hell than any other person in the Bible. He compared constantly this lifetime to eternity. He said, think about this. What is your life worth if you, if you lose your soul for the rest of eternity? What's it, what, what are you going to gain in this world that's worth losing it forever? That makes total sense. He's so wise. At one point, Peter confesses to Jesus, Lord, you know all things. Peter came to this realization, Jesus was not just a good teacher, he literally knew everything. He was an expert. You can never outknow God. You can never outknow Jesus. He's so brilliant. He could look into the human heart and he knew exactly what was there. He knew how to diagnose every problem in our hearts. He knew the solution. He knew exactly what to say every second that he lived on this world. He knew every word. Every single word that came out of his mouth was wise and, and full of knowledge. Okay? Somebody went to question him one time. They said, teacher, this is, this is some Pharisees, some of the religious leaders. They literally took turns trying to trap Jesus. And they would throw out questions that they had been thinking of probably for months of like, man, how can we really baffle this, this teacher that's making us look bad? Because they were jealous. They were envious of Jesus and his authority and his following. And they wanted to, to show the, the crowds, that, hey, this guy's, he's not the real deal. So they came up to them and they said, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? This book contains a lot of commandments. Jesus, without blinking an eye, without having to say, you know what, let me get back to you in a week, says this, the greatest is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Those two commands do not show up next to each other in the Old Testament. The second command that he references, love your neighbor as yourself, is in some obscure little passage next to how to take care of animals. And he, he takes those two commands, he brings them together. He says, upon these two hang all the law and the prophets. He summarizes this entire book in one succinct thought that has never been rivaled throughout history. It, it doesn't, it, you cannot summarize it better than that. Love God and love others. That's wisdom. Right now, just because somebody's wise doesn't necessarily mean they're good. How many of you have been to a dentist and you want your dentist to know what he's doing? Right? You don't want a dentist that is unwise. It could really make a mess of your mouth. Now, what if that dentist, he knows everything there is to know about dentistry. He knows every nerve in your mouth, knows every pressure point, knows what will hurt the most. And let's say that dentist is not a good guy. We've got the makings for a horror, a horror movie right here, right? Sitting in the dentist's chair, and he's, you know, extracting as much pain as possible from you. You see, just because he knows a lot doesn't make him good. You don't trust him just because he knows a lot about being a dentist. You have to also see that dentist is a good man. He desires to actually help you and not cause you pain. So the second basis upon which we can trust God is this, that he's, he's trustworthy because not only is he wise, but he's totally good. Everyone who came to Jesus to be healed was healed. Jesus never turned a single person away that asked him to heal them. He would often ask people, what would you have me do for you? And they would tell him, Lord, I want to see. A blind man once said, Lord, give me my eyesight. He said, unto your faith, let it be done according to you. He would would heal everyone who came there. There was was never a time where he's like, "Ah, I'm just not going to deal with you. He freed people from demonic possession who were unable to cry out for help, right? He washed, or he, yeah, he washed his disciples' feet. He served them. He said this. What kind of king says this, by the way? 
I came not to be served, but to serve others. Who says that? What kind of king is that? That's the king we all want because that's a good king. He sacrificially gave his life for you. That's a good person. That's as good as it gets. He says there's no greater love than this that a man would lay down his life for his friends. Jesus laid down his life for you. There's no greater proof he could offer of his goodness. So he's totally wise and he's totally good. And he commands us to trust him on that basis. Thank you, Jesus. Not only that, but Jesus is still living. Jesus still speaks today. Did you guys know that? Jesus still speaks. Like I mentioned in my story, he wants to speak to us tonight. There's a verse at the end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, chapter 3, verse 20. It's one of my favorite verses. One of my all-time favorite scriptures. It says this, if any man... Or excuse me, it says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if any man hears my voice and opens a door, I will come in and dine with him and he with me. If anyone, if anyone opens that door, we focus on that part, the opening the door part. That makes sense. Okay, let Jesus into my life. But we neglect the fact that he says, If anyone hears my voice. I have a pastor friend of mine who was ministering to a woman who grew up in church not knowing she could hear God. And he ministered this word to her. He said, do you see in this scripture, it says God wants you to hear his voice. And they prayed, and they a- he asked God to speak to her. And she heard God speak to her. And she, with tears streaming down her face, she said, I never knew I could know God like this. Him, like a friend. Like, I could talk to him, and he can actually talk back to me. See, we all understand Jesus is trustworthy. It's one thing to understand someone's trustworthy. It's another thing altogether to actually trust him. (laughs) There was this person who used to do a trapeze act across the Niagara Falls a long time ago when that was the thing, that was the entertainment of the day. Watch a man tightrope walk across Niagara Falls. And this guy was so good at it, he he would balance all kinds of things on his back. He would, you know, carry all kinds of weights and he would jump up and down on the rope and everyone would always applaud and cheer and go crazy. And then he said one time, he threw out a challenge. He said, okay, how many of you believe I could carry another human being on my back? And everyone was like, yeah, you could do it. We believe in you. You're awesome. And he's like, any volunteers? (laughs) Total silence. (laughs) One man actually volunteered. So the story goes, got on his back, carried him across. This man was shaking so violently. And, and basically, like, causing the tightrope walker to get off balance, he said, look, you have to trust me. You have to relax. If we're going to make it back alive, let go. And just, just, just let me carry you. And the guy had to let go. He had to just, just relax. And he got him back across safely. You see, trust is evidenced by our obedience. Your obedience to God shows your trust in him. Where there's no obedience, it means you don't trust God. God wants, he's only interested in your obedience. No, that's false. <laughs> like, do you hear Dwight Schrute? I, when, I was, when I was doing that, I was like, false. <laughs> he does not just want your obedience. God wants your loving, trusting obedience. If all God was concerned about was just your obedience, he would have made you into a robot, a machine, an automaton that had no ability to think or choose for yourself. What God is after is something more than obedience. He wants your heart. 
A heart that loves him and trusts him will obey. A heart that loves and trusts God will obey. And the gospel motivates by trust and love. You have been given spiritual eyes to see the loveliness of God. Every single one of you has built-in spiritual capacity to see God and to hear God. Not with these ears, not with these eyes. But in a real sense, you can see and hear him tonight. And when you look at God and you see how lovely he is, how lovely and beautiful his will is, you're going to want to obey him. And that's the kind of people that God has desired since the very beginning of this whole story. And he wants that from us tonight. We can be those people who love and trust Jesus so much. Remember, he's so trustworthy. He's so lovely. When you look at him and you just fix your eyes on him, that's how you obey. Now, obedience is always a risk. You could say this. Faith is spelled R-I-S-K. There is always a risk in obedience. There's always something you could lose when you step out and obey God. It might be your reputation. It might be uh, money, finances. It might be career. It might be uh, your parents' approval. Yeah, there's all kinds. Of, every time you obey God, there's always a risk, but there's always a reward, too. And let me tell you about that reward. The reward is this, the joy and the pleasure of pleasing God. There will always be joy in obedience. And here's how we obey. When we consider rightly that the reward of the joy and pleasure of God is greater than anything it will cost us. Those people I mentioned who got the Bibles from Brother Andrew, this is what they said to him once. We're not, we're not scared of what they'll do to us with these Bibles. We care more about doing the will of God than our own safety. For me, when I became a Christian, when I bowed my knees to God and I got up from that experience and I started following him, I was hungry to obey him because I loved him finally. One, of the, one day I was in my room and God spoke to me. He said, Brent, I want you to go to Catholic Charities. Catholic Charities is a mission for homeless people. And I had had a heart for homeless people and reaching out to homeless people. God told me to start eating lunches there. They have a free lunch every meal, every day, five days a week. You can go, you can eat there with homeless people and get to know them. And that was, that was what all I was doing. I was just trying to be obedient, and I knew God was leading me there. One day, God said this, Brent, I want you to stand up at that lunch. I want you to preach. <laughs> I was like, oh, <laughs> that's, that's a risk, right? That's scary. That was scary. I, my, here's what I did. I, <laughs> full of fear, full of fear. I got up with my Bible. My knees were shaking. I preached for 20 seconds. I just blurted out what was coming to mind. And I said something crazy like, in the name of Jesus, let every bad back be healed. I got down and sat down. That was one of my first sermons. It was 20 seconds long. <laughs> okay. This guy who was at that homeless shelter, who was also homeless, went up to me afterwards. I think shortly afterwards he said, what you did was really foolish, and it was embarrassing to watch. <laughs> How would you like to, that to happen after you step out for God? He literally was, like, rebuking me, and, like, he's like, I'm not sure you were even hearing God when you did that. <laughs> and I was like, you know what? You might be right. I might have misheard. But then I, this testimony came back. This lady, he, God asked me to do it a second time. And the second time I did it, this lady raises her hand up. She says, yeah, yeah, last time you preached. My back was healed, okay? So, you see, God, 
will, will honor your obedience. That's how, that's how you get to see this book come alive. That's how you enter into the adventure of Scripture. Scripture was meant to be an adventure. And you will love this word when you're living it out. Worship team, if you could come back up. This is what obedience looks like. You ready? Here's the Greek definition, the Hebrew definition. Just do what God says. <laughs> Just do what he says. That's obedience. Maybe for some of you, I've challenged guys. I've said, hey, if you stole something, go and give it back. I had a guy, a dear brother, who in, in now, he could have just been like, you know, that was a long time ago, Brent. I don't need to worry about it. But the scripture shows us that when we do wrong, we should actually make steps to make it right. He said, I want to obey God. So he went to that Walmart. He found a manager. He said, some years ago, I stole something really small from here. I want to pay you back for it. That's the kind of obedience I'm talking about. Some of you tonight, you're going to read in this word that Jesus gave us authority to heal the sick. My, my roommate, Cole, and I, we were in Outpost together. We were best friends. He was the best man at my wedding. And we were learning about God together, and we came across that passage, and we were like, what do we do with this? Like, God wants to heal people today? We're not seeing anyone healed. What is with this? We said, my, my friend Cole and I, we said, you know what? Let's start stepping out and asking God to heal people. I'll never forget when Cole came back to my room we were living together in an apartment off campus. He came back and said, Brent, it happened. It happened. I was like, what happened? God healed someone. I prayed for them today. This girl, I just stopped her randomly on campus. I just, I just said, I, I, I don't know if you even believe this, but God wants to heal you. And she let me pray for her. And as I prayed for her, this, this broken, I think it was a broken shoulder bone, healed in her shoulder. That's obedience. You just you read it and hear like, God wants me to do it. All right, let's go do it. But you've got to be motivated by trust and love, okay? And so tonight, we're going we're gonna to look at Jesus, okay? That's where we get our motivation from. We're just going to look at Jesus tonight. Oh, yes, yes, yes. We're going to look at him. How many of you? No, I'm not going to ask that. I, I want to say this. When we come in, when we face Jesus, and I said you could see him, and that's real tonight. There's a promise of that tonight. And you can hear Jesus. Jesus says, if anyone hears me, Tonight, Outpost, we can hear God, every single one of you. If you just say, yes, Jesus, I want to see you. Yes, Jesus, I want to feel you. You can feel him tonight. You can feel the love of God for you, the Father's love. You can feel that come in your heart tonight if you desire so. I remember the first time I worshipped, it was at that SALT conference. I lifted my hands up. I never lifted my hands in worship, so worried about what people thought about me. But I was done with that when I got on my knees. I lifted my hands up in freedom, and I was just worshiping God, and I felt his presence. Obedience is freedom. Obedience is freedom. Lift your hands up tonight. Get on your knees if you need to. Go find a place, a corner of this room. Push your chair out of the way if you have to. Come up front if you have to. I don't care whatever it takes. But just say, God, I need to look at you tonight. I need to fall more in love with you so that I'm motivated to obey you, to trust you. I need to see your loveliness tonight. I need to behold your face. And Jesus is going to meet us in that.